0: We're looking at verses 6 and 7, 1 Peter chapter 5. Fairly confident that if there's one thing I don't have to do this morning is to convince you of the fact that the Christian life is hard. I don't think I have to convince you of that. It is not an easy life due to the abundance of trials that we face. We face physical affliction, whether it be sickness. Spiritual affliction, constant temptation, battling our flesh, financial hardship, hardships with families, uncertainty of the future. We, we face suffering, suffering at the hands of other people, maybe even suffering as a result of our own sinful consequences. And even to crown these afflictions, you have the promise of persecution as a Christian. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 reminds us that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That you have the promise of being afflicted, being persecuted. The Christian life is hard. And yet a common invitation to unbelievers that I'm sure we've all heard at one point or another is oftentimes it starts with that God has a wonderful life, a wonderful plan for your life. And let's be honest, that's true. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But let's define wonderful. <laughs> Cuz it's not wonderful but always by the hands or the ears who hear that message. The statement's it's true only if you view it from God's perspective. But that's not often what is implied by that statement when it's said. It's offered as an enticement of a better life. Like your life is not okay too much, so come to Jesus and it'll get better. It's offered as, as, you can get all the, the, the wonderful things that you've been looking for. Just, just make this decision and follow Jesus. But the reality is that the invitation of Christianity essentially begins with this message. And that is to be humbled. Be broken and be contrite. That the message to come to Christ is essentially, behold Christ. See Christ and offer up your sinfulness to the sinless Savior. That the message begins with the understanding of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, and our need of him. In other words, be humbled. Be humbled before a holy God who will crush you in your rebellion if you continue in that rebellion. And he will crush you in hell for all eternity in a resurrected body that is designed for the person to endure eternal punishment forever. Be humbled before this God, but at the same time, be humbled before this God who will willingly save you if you come to him in brokenness, asking for his mercy that's found in Christ. That it begins with humility. Now hear me, this humility does not end when we come to Christ, but rather we are to continually be humbled before God. That our life is to be marked with humility as a believer, and especially in our afflictions especially in our hardships, especially in our sufferings. So if there's one critical truth this morning that we all should grasp, if you haven't heard it yet, it is to be humbled. Be humbled. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Within these two verses, we're going to work through it phrase by phrase in in order for us just to milk it for all that it's worth. Are you humble? I realize it's a dangerous question. It's a dangerous task to evaluate ourselves, to see if we're humble. In a sense, I was just talking to someone the other day, it's like when you're searching yourself or searching for humility, something that is inherently designed to look away from yourself, but you're searching. Am I humble? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I am humble. Ah. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. (laughs) You fail the test almost immediately. It is a dangerous test, but it is a true question and something we really should ask of our souls this morning. This is the one command in this passage. It is to humble ourselves. We must ask, am I humbled before this God? so we can ask it or even test ourselves this way what is your disposition when difficulty arises how would people categorize or explain how you are in the midst of difficulties how would your children, your spouse your best friends, do they know what happens when the heat rises for you does anger rule your heart, does anxiety fear or even Do you continually battle hopelessness, maybe feeling as if there is no point, many pressures? What's the point? Or are you just disgruntled, disgruntled at life, disgruntled with people? You feel isolated. You feel alone. Have you allowed yourself to become lukewarm at heart? What about bitterness? You're bitter. Has bitterness taken a hold of you? You just think about these these characteristics, which are not just struggles in themselves, but they really come from a lack of humility. And hear me, this is not to condemn you, but perhaps to reveal a universal struggle amongst believers, if we were honest. So in a sense, really, this is a family talk. This is a family talk, and the Lord has encouraging words for us in this regard of humility. This humble Savior who came for his people desires for us to be humble as he is. So I want us to see four assurances in affliction that should encourage you to walk humbly for the glory of Christ. Four assurances in affliction that should encourage you to walk humbly for the glory of Christ. Now realize we come in the middle of this book because Pastor Eric has been working through Matthew, so we're just jumping into 1 Peter. And not only that, toward the end of 1 Peter. But just for context here for us, we just have to understand a couple things. We want to understand the thrust from which Peter is, is speaking to us. He's writing to Christians who are dispersed all throughout Asia Minor. And this book was written before or after AD 64, which was right there when the persecutions of Christians began under the reign of Nero. And this was intense persecution ahead of them. Whether this was written before that or in the middle of it, this was intense persecution that came. They were already despised, the Christians were, because of their relationship with the Jews. And so this persecution also just heightened it, that they were hated. And it rose and it came to a head. And even more, they were persecuted for unjust reasons. I don't want to waste too much time here, but we live in a culture where Persecution can come to the church and to Christians, and even for unjust reasons, because they don't understand really what it means to be a Christian. They don't understand who Christ is and what he teaches, and so it's misinterpreted, and just people end up hating for the sake of Christ. It's not far from us, but they were in this context headed for that, or in it, intense persecution for the sake of Christ. And as Peter closes this letter, a significant and reoccurring command within this book is essentially humble yourselves. Now, looking back to verse 5, you see how we're instructed, he says, to clothe ourselves with humility. He says, since God resists the proud and pours out his grace upon the humble he says now therefore in our passage now humble yourselves because god opposes the proud the one who resists him the one who does not have a right view of him or of yourself he resists the proud and so therefore be humble so you can receive grace now it's strange that in the context of persecution that he's hit it on time and time again in this book they've been suffering they're under affliction and the exhortation he gives to them is to be humble You're under the hand of persecution. You're maybe suffering, losing losses, people, suffering. And the exhortation is not just take hope, although it's true, but it's be humble. Isn't that strange? that He's going after, at the end of this, he makes sure it's clear with these believers, be humble in the context of your persecution, of your suffering. Is that the first thing that comes to your mind when you face hardship? is I need to be humble. Is that the first thing that comes to our mind? But he's saying here, be humble. Because let's be honest here. What is the first thing that comes to our mind? I'm suffering. Lord, end it. Lord, take it away. Lord, ease the burden. It hurts, Lord. It's not a bad prayer. But if Peter were here, I think the first thing he would say before that. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Now what does it mean to humble ourselves? You can say to bow down in your heart. To bow down in your heart before God. That to humble ourselves is to look away from ourselves and to bow down in our heart before God. That if we are bowing down, then that means that I realize it's not about me, but it's about him and his way we must maintain a clear vision of God if we want to be humble that if we want to truly fulfill the essence of what God wants for his people whether you are suffering or whether you are excelling then we must be humbled and if we want to be humbled we must look at God And this is the exhortation and the reminder that he gives to suffering Christians. And if it's a message to suffering Christians, how much more should it be to every Christian in every circumstance of our life? Are we humble? Have we bowed down in our heart to God? And I think if we're honest, we struggle in true humility. Because that's evident in how we walk through circumstances. But the Lord has encouragements for us in this. We must maintain a clear vision of God, because pride rears its ugly head when we lose sight of the majestic sovereignty of God. Because by definition, it's not pride looking at ourselves. So we need to hold fast to these four assurances in affliction that should encourage you to walk humbly for the glory of Christ. And that is my prayer That we would not just seek to be humble by this some Christianese term and just walk away not really knowing what does that mean and how does that flesh out. But it has to be informed with the truth of God's word and how he's instructed us not only to humble ourselves, but what is the assurance in that humbling so that we can walk humbly and glorify Christ in our life. So let's look at the first assurance. That we have to know God's power in affliction. God's power in affliction. If you were raised in the California school system, and I'm sure you remember then the, the, the drills that they would do sporadically throughout the year. They probably still do it. But one of their drills is the earthquake drill. And so during the earthquake, they would tell us, what do you do during an earthquake? And I still remember the desk and what they looked like. You were to go under the desk and hide there. Now looking back on that, and I was thinking on it, if an earthquake really were to happen, how much faith do I have in some fake wood to cover me from steel beams? I, I don't know. I struggle to really believe that this desk is going to uphold me in the case of an earthquake. But yet we're told to do that. And to be honest, I didn't look into it to really just, is this really scientifically valid? So if that's what they still tell you to do, do it. Stand under a door, I don't know, under a desk. But still, it's going to be difficult for me to believe that this table, that this fake wood is going to protect me in an earthquake. I'm struggling to believe that. But now, here Peter is saying for us to to humble ourselves, but then he tells us to humble ourselves where? Where does he say it? It's in your text. You notice how he's saying, where do we humble ourselves? Not just humble ourselves in some sort of abstract confidential strength, But he says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Where do you place your confidence? Where is your strength found? It is not in some sort of abstract knowledge of what God is. He's powerful, so just hope that God will save you. Hope that God will cover you. Hope that God will provide for you. But rather, he says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It would have been one thing if we're commanded to humble ourselves under a shelter that will most likely, maybe got like a 75, 25 chance of being sheltered. But no, he says to humble yourselves under the sure, the certain, the secure hand of God. God cannot be surprised. He can't be overwhelmed. He can't be overpowered by anything or anyone. So what better hand is there to be under than that? that he says to humble yourselves under his mighty hand, that we should be confident to know that there is nothing that can overpower his hand. And if there is nothing that can overpower his hand, that means everything that happens under his hand is by his sovereign control. And so if I'm going to humble myself under his hand, I know whatever my God had is good. But going further with this, he uses the phrase God's mighty hand. This mighty hand, which is an interesting phrase of saying God's power and strength. But this is a common expression that is used in the Old Testament. And oftentimes when this phrase is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same phrase is used in the Old Testament referring to God's hand in power, in deliverance, in discipline that it's used time and time again all throughout the Old Testament. So there's no doubt that Peter, when he is using this phrase, he is drawing back to all of the pictures of God's mighty hand over his people. And so when he's saying to, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, he's drawing over the well of God's power that has been clearly displayed in history. Now, you look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 26. It says, I prayed to the Lord and said, Moses speaking, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt. How? With a mighty hand. That he's pointing back to the exodus of God's people out of the somewhat strong hand of Pharaoh by the mighty hand of God. And referring to that exodus, that it was accomplished by God's mighty hand. You even see how this mighty hand in the Old Testament is used as this, this symbol, the symbol of, of discipline for God's people. So even when they rebelled, when they turned against him, that it was God's mighty hand that disciplined them for their good. Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 33 says, as I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. Even look at the sufferings of Job, who suffered, not necessarily because he did anything wrong, but as Job suffered, chapter 30 verse 21, he says, you have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. That you see time and time again that this phrase, God's mighty hand, is used to display God's providence over his people. And if I can say it this way, we need to be assured of his power in providence. Because it is God's mighty hand that brings us through difficulty, that brings us to difficulty, and sustains us through difficulty. That we have to understand that what God wants his people to understand, no matter the depth and the weight of the suffering of the affliction that his mighty hand has ordained for you, it is under his power, it is in his providence, and it is going to be to his glory. And so for God's people, we must understand if we are humbling ourselves before God, we are not just hoping that God will turn out and make things all right. But rather we know God has sent me here and he will sustain me through here and it's his mighty hand that will accomplish his great purposes. And what I must do is not question and not raise my fist against him, but rather submit and bow in my heart before this God. I need to be assured of his power, of his might, that his might has been told all throughout generations of this good God, this glorious God who amplifies and glorifies his name even in the suffering of his people so that his goodness can be seen in it and so that his glory can be displayed and so that his glory can be testified, that he has and wants us to see that this, his power is clearly connected with his providence. And so for believers, we know Romans 8, 28, some things work, no, right? All things work for the glory, for, for your good. And so Peter's, Peter's readers were to submit to God's dealings with him as part of his program of discipline, his purification and training of his family members. This is God's work toward those who he loves, That every joy, every hardship, every blessing, every burden is a product of God's mighty hand. Stop. Do we see it that way? Do we really see every hard day of parenting, every difficult day at work, every struggle in our marriage, every conflict with our kids, every financial hardship, do we really see this as a product of God's mighty hand? if we really saw it as a product of God's mighty hand, then the only response should be to bow down before this God. The blessing we may readily give thanks, and we should, should give thanks because we realize all things are from him, and as we read about this morning, through him and to him. But are we joyful in the burdens? If this is true, then we have to understand that the Lord will do with you whatever he wants to do with you. Because you belong to him. And as 1 Peter reminds us earlier in the book that you were purchased. He bought you. And it wasn't like he just gave anything. He gave his son. And his son poured out his blood for you. To the point of death. Cannot God do whatever he wants with you? Do you believe and trust that it is good? Do we see it as his mighty hand working in us? And what could God be accomplishing in us with his mighty hand? The short answer is we don't know. We don't know. He could be refining us. He can be strengthening us. He could be pursuing us to further Christ's likeness. could be disciplining us or even persecution just like his son went through we don't know all what god is doing but we do know one thing it is under his mighty hand so we must be assured of god's power in affliction this does not mean that every aspect of the christian life is miserable Like, we should not view it as, I'm going to call to Christianity, so now my life is miserable. That's another issue. But we have to see it. If, If that is true, if God is truly sovereign, if he in providence ordains all things, there is nothing to be miserable in the Christian life. Because we know his end. We know what he's doing. And he is always good. But we have to notice here the second assurance that he gives. We have to understand not only his power, but God's purpose in affliction. Because humility should not be seen here as the ultimate goal for us. The the ultimate goal is not just be humble. That's not the end. I'm going through a difficult time. That's just life. I need to be humble and endure it. And that's it. It's hard. Hey, this is what the Lord promised. And our conversation's in there. It's like we walk around like an Eeyore, realizing like, yes, I got to be humble. A hard day, hard week, but I'm trusting in the Lord, and that's it. But hear me, the end goal is not just humble, to be, hum- to be humble. The end goal is not humility. And, and I want us to see this for ourselves. Go back to chapter 1 of this book. And I want you to see here, where is, is Peter drawing the hearts of his readers? Where is he reminding them of? And what is he pointing their attention to? And really, what is he saying is the end of this? Chapter 1, verse 5, he's talking about the inheritance, the salvation given to us. And he says in verse 5, who are protected by the power of God, amen, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Go to chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the visitation. You see here, glory is in view. Go to chapter 4, verse 13. Beloved, or verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for the testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But... To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, but also a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. What is in view here for God's people? That the end is not just to be humbled, but we long, we thirst, I'm waiting for glory. And he says in our passage, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you in the proper time. The end here is not humility, but the end is exaltation. That Jesus himself said in Matthew 23 verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. He says here, humble yourselves that you may be exalted in the proper time. The point is not just to bring us to our knees just for the sake of bringing to your knees, but the point is to humble ourselves so that he can exalt you in the proper time. Now, commentators go back and forth in terms of what is he talking about when he's saying in the proper time? Like, when is that time? We just read about time in 1 Peter already when he says the in the last time, he says, to be revealed, the salvation to be revealed. He's referring to this eschatological sense of in the time, that in the last time, he says in the chapter 1. There are other commentators that believe that in the proper time is not referring to the eschatological end time when we will see Christ and his glory in that time. But rather, Peter is referring to just in time when God sees fit in our life. There's two views here working at, at play. Is that whether this improper time, when we'll be exalted, is it at the end when we see Christ? Or could it be in this lifetime? I won't take us through all the nuts and bolts of that. But I'm going to walk you through my thinking of what I think Peter is trying to get us to see here. When he says that to humble ourselves that we may be exalted at the proper time... Yes, he does use time in the eschatological sense in chapter 1, verse 5 that we read. That the salvation is to be revealed. He says literally, though, in the last time, which is the last time. But in our passage here, he just says that God will exalt you in time. Our Bible translators, bringing out the sense of the the message, says in proper time, but literally it reads that God will exalt you in time. So what is Peter doing? I don't think he's only limiting it to that eschatological endpoint of time of exaltation, but he's saying at the proper time in God's own time clock, he will exalt. Now that means there will be times in suffering in our time, in our life, we will face hardship and affliction, and there will be times when God in his goodness relieves us of that affliction. There will be times when we are suffering because our kids are in rebellion. And we are afflicted. And then our kids, one day, after years of prayer, come to Christ. And that affliction is relieved. And they say, whoa, I mocked you, mom and dad. But now this Christ I love. There's exaltation in that. That in the proper time is essentially in God's time clock. But hear this, that even though if God chooses to, in a sense, give relief or exaltation in this life, in his own time, whether it's healing, whether it's release, whatever it is, when God chooses to do so, it is only a foretaste of the supreme fulfillment of the exaltation at the second coming of Christ. So I think he just says, in time, God will exalt you And a general principle to say that God will work in us and he will lift you up in time. And so if he sovereignly chooses to lift you up in this life, amen and amen, praise God. But it is only a foretaste of the ultimate exaltation that we will see when we see Christ. So in time, he will exalt you. So what do we do now? I'm going to bow my heart before this God. And he is going to do what he wills, whether it is today, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's next year, whether it's in 40 years, or whether it's in eternity. I do not know, but my heart is bowed down before this God. Part of humility, as one person said, is willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. I think we know that, but it's hard to hear And it's hard to live. That to wait for things in God's timetable. It's not on your time. But it's always on time, amen? And it's always at the right time. That God is working. So we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Trusting in his perfect timing. And ultimately fixing our hope to the fulfillment of the second coming of the son. So we must be assured That this humbling is not the end. So understand his purpose in this. His purpose in affliction is not just to bring us low. But it is to exalt at the right time. And God in his time clock will always do right. So we humble our heart to know it will be on time. Third assurance is we must know God's prescription in affliction. His prescription in affliction. And so what is the Lord prescribing for us? He says to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. We're to trust in his power and providence and in his purpose. But yet there's still something that we are to do with our concerns. Because still, There's still the issue. I still have concerns. I understand. I bow my heart before this God, trusting in his timing, understanding that he is powerful in his providence to do what he wills. But yet what do you do with your concerns? You can do two things. You can bear them, or you can cast them. You can bear them, or you can cast them. And what does he tell us to do? He says, casting, verse six, verse 7, <clears throat> casting all your anxiety on him. What do you do with it? You throw it, literally cast is to throw upon him. You give it to him. It's a participial verb. It's an ING verb explaining how believers can humble themselves under God's mighty hand. So if we step back and look at the passage again, he says, humble yourselves, which is the command. And so how do we humble ourselves, according to verse 7? Casting our cares before him. You cast your anxiety on him. That how am I displaying this this, this humility? How am I to be humble? It is to realize the weight and my need and to cast it upon him. And why would I cast it upon him? Because I realize I am insufficient to bear this and to walk through this. And so therefore, I must cast it upon the one who ordained this for me. And I trust him to do what is good for me. And so I give him my cares. And so we cast it. What are we to do with it? We give it to him. We humble ourselves. By casting our worries on God, we bring every concern before him. Philippians 4, 6, we know it well. Not to be anxious about anything, but what do we do? By prayer, casting, and supplication, making requests, you make your requests known to God. We see here he's saying, you don't bear it, but you cast it. And we can say here then, by implication, when we fail to cast our cares before God, but rather when we allow ourselves and our heart to be consumed with fear and anxiety because we have not cast it upon the Lord, that means we're still prideful in our heart. If we're not casting our cares, we have not humbled ourselves. It shows that giving it shows that that in neglecting to do this, in this example of pride. And I think it's important for us is when we know we are to give our concerns to the Lord, what I think is just practically helpful for us is to not just generally, Lord, I give this to you, which is good prayer, so pray it, but I really think we need to be specific in really what are we casting. Because if you think about it this way, for example, Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, when it's the, the passage of Paul's affliction, his own affliction, you notice how Paul works through that affliction for us when he's talking about the thorn in his side. He says there was a messenger, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. And what does Paul do about that affliction? The thorn in his side, what does he do specifically? He, he tells us that I asked the Lord to take it from me. To take it from me three times. He spe- specifically sought God through supplication, as he should have, about, Lord, this thorn is in my side, and it hurts. Right, right, we're not going to talk about what the thorn was, but his affliction. And this, Lord, it hurts. And what does Paul do about that? He prays specifically, Lord, remove it. But then he comes to the end of it, and God does not move, remove it. And so what does Paul do? He says, the Lord told me that your grace, his grace is sufficient for me. He was very specific about what he was toiling with, what afflicted him, and he brought it before the Lord, and he realized that God's grace is sufficient whether he changes it or not. I think we must be specific when we are struggling with anxiety or fear or anger, when we are under affliction of any sort, we must bring our specific cares before the Lord, that we have to, to be specific about what we are toiling with, that, Lord, you have called me to parent And, Lord, these kids are trying me. Lord, I'm angry. Lord, and I realize this is wrong. I want it my way, and I want it now. And, God, I confess that selfishness. But, Lord, help me not to want just an easy parenting day, but help me to be a faithful parent. I give to you, Lord, this difficult day, trusting in your hand to uphold me. I realize my specific need of what I'm wanting, and I'm casting it before him because I realize my problem is I want it my way, and I want it now. My heart is not bowed down to him because I want it my way. Lord, I'm going into work here, and you know this difficulty I have with the supervisor who's always picking on me. His his expectations are unreasonable. He isn't even living out himself. He's a hypocrite. And, And, Lord, I realize your word says that I must be obedient to this master, even if he is unreasonable to, toward me. Lord, help me not to want to be acknowledged at work, but Lord, help me to work specifically to glorify you. We need to be specific in really what are we carrying, what anxiety is weighing you down, and what is it that we want that I need to cast to God to realize I may be prideful in this, that I need to humble myself, What do I need to cast before you, Lord, so that I can humble myself and that you will, in the right time, exalt me? So as we see, you can't separate genuine humility from incessant prayer. If we're failing to pray, we're failing to be humble. Because prayer just inherently emphasizes our need of God. You can't separate them. And what we tend to do is we normally see prayer as a last resort in our struggles. You ever notice that of yourself? Like sometimes I catch myself, I'm like, why did I wait till when I was almost boiling up to start praying then? You know, what happened to praying even just before it happened? And even praying when I just started to feel anxious, when I started to be angry? Angry. What happened, why should I pray even at the beginning of temptation? Like why do I just wait to pray when it's almost like I'm already almost drowning. Now, praise God, he's gracious in all his timing, and he always sustains us. But I do think there's wisdom in us realizing our need to pray, not just as a last resort. When we suddenly think that, I'm at the end of my, I've tried everything, so let me just now pray, and give to God. And just how prideful is that? That we don't realize how prideful we're even in that of just seeing our prayer life as a last resort now. Let me now bring this to God because he's powerful. He can sustain me. He can uphold me. So now let me start praying. And just the subtle ways when pride seeps in in our life. But prayer is not our last resort. It is our supreme weapon in, in humble dependence. We must pray. And our prescription he gives us is, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. So how do you do that? You're casting your cares on him. Now, finally, this fourth assurance is God's provision in affliction. Now, why do you cast your cares upon him? Why are we to do this? He says simply at the end of verse 7, Because he cares for you. Your shepherd cares for you. This simple yet comforting words from the mouth of God should encourage us, no matter the affliction that comes your way. God cares for you. We cast our cares upon him, not only because he's able to bear them, amen and amen, and not only because he has commanded us to do so, amen and amen, but we cast our cares because he cares for you. He loves you. And it's the last thing sometimes we think in the middle of our affliction. God, why are you doing this? We doubt his care for us. But we must see even in the affliction, it is his care for you. So that he can be seen as your, all, as your all in all. He loves you. This ought to be an encouraging motivation that God deeply cares for you. And there are times in, in, in this it's first Peter where I, I kind of chuckled to myself because time and time again, Peter is, is almost like alluding to some of the words that Jesus has said in the Gospels. And he's, he's kind of rephrasing them, but he's applying them. And, and these words that Jesus himself said, and no doubt Peter was there when he heard them. I kind of laugh because it's almost like Peter's probably writing this. And he's like, that's what the Lord meant. Oh, yeah, so when he was talking about God providing for the birds and the, 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 the lilies and the fish. So this is what he meant. Yeah, okay, I need to tell the churches here. Now, you, you, you need to, he cares about you. It's almost like the, the light was turning off for Peter. I mean, come on, if you're honest here in the church, Peter gets gotten hit by many buses, right? We always throw Peter on the bus. But it's, it's almost as if he's heard all of these talks that the Lord has said, and he's applying them now in this epistle to, to believers to live out. Like, this is what the Lord meant. Oh, cast your cares. He cares for you. If he takes care of the lilies, if he dresses them, why are we worried about what we're going to wear? If he feeds the birds, why am we worried about he's going to feed me? If he protects, why am I concerned about God, about what God can do for me if I realize who God is? And he always provides for his creation, so certainly he's going to provide for his children. And so he says he cares for you. As Matthew 6, 26 says, he says, are you not much more valuable than they, the lilies, the birds? So he will meet your need. It may not feel like it because I'm still in pain, but your need may not be relief. Your need may be dependence. That we are to cast our cares because God cares for you. You ever notice with in parenting when your child gets back from school or from an event, and you ask them, "How did it go?" And they say, "Good." And that's it. And you ask them because oh, because you want to know, you care. Like, okay, yeah. So, so, what'd you do? What'd you learn? Who'd you hang out with? What'd you talk about? Nothing. Nothing? Did you did you did you learn anything? Nah, sort of. Like you're trying to prod, but as a parent, you genuinely care how their day went. You want to know how did that go? You were I was I thought of you like did you have fun? I remember you're worried about this. How did that go? That's yeah, fine. <laughs> like you're really just trying to prod and get it out of them because you care. But now if you look back, if we had a time machine. You go back 20, 30 years, what did you say when you are asked the same question? <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's, it's this continual understanding. Like, we, we always do the same thing. And it's true, maybe we understand that our parents care. Maybe our kids understand that we care. But we have to be honest, they don't care that we care. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> because they're consumed more with, with them. They, they want to deal with their day how they want to deal with their day they want to deal with their hardships how they want to deal with their hardships so even though you care and even though they care i mean even though they you care and they know that you care they don't care that you care (laughs) but that's how sometimes i think we can get in our prayer life because when we fail to pray we don't bring our cares before the lord because we really don't realize or let's be honest sometimes it doesn't matter that god cares because i want it this way Because it hurts too much still. I don't want to focus and think about it the way God wants me to think about it. God cares about my life that he wants to work in me a certain way. But let's be honest, I don't care if he wants to do it that way. I want it this way. (laughs) But he's saying here, cast your cares because he cares. And now, genuinely, we have to understand that God does care about the affliction. And he cares how we walk through the affliction. And so, therefore, what do we do? We cast it. Because he cares and he provides. This statement here is pointing back to Psalm 55, the Psalm of David. And David is recounting his own affliction, he's recounting his own hardship. And in this psalm here, it's not just hardship from an enemy, he says, but it hurts because it's someone from whom he loves. That he is battling great affliction at the hands of people who he thought loved him. And that's oftentimes the worst kind of affliction when it's coming from someone you thought was a friend, but you realize they weren't. And in this psalm, at the end of the psalm, verse 22, David himself says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Peter's likely recalling from that chapter, from that psalm, of of God caring for his people. And so what does David do? What should God's people do? Is cast our cares upon him. God is not indifferent to our sufferings. I think we know that. And what we have to renew our mind is to realize that if God is not indifferent to our sufferings... And he's also not indifferent to how we walk through those sufferings. That in our affliction, affliction, God wants us to humble ourselves, understanding his power. He wants us to humble ourselves so that we can be exalted, understanding his purpose. But he also wants us to walk through in in the right way by casting our concerns upon him, but realizing all this that he cares for us in his provision. That God is not indifferent. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, as difficult as the Christian life is, could you just imagine walking through the same life without Christ? And all the afflictions that you come across, that you face, could you imagine walking through the burdens in your life, even now, apart from Christ? As painful and overwhelming life may be at times, how impossible would it be to live life by our own resources, by our own wisdom? But because of the effects of the fall, life is hard. Life is hard. This sin-sick world, it it screams redemption. It screams, come back. It screams Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. You can't escape suffering. You can't escape the affliction. And so rather than, than, than balking against his mighty and gracious hand, the call is for us to humble ourselves under his hand and not balk against it. Now, as we seek to be humble, one thing we can't lose in this whole talk here is this pursuit of humility cannot be achieved apart from looking intently and gazing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be humble if you lose sight of Christ in your pursuit of humility. Take note of how often Peter draws the eyes back to Jesus when he's talking about suffering in this epistle. All throughout this time, he's drawing their eyes back to Christ. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He says, because Christ also suffered, arm yourselves rightly. That he's pointing them back to Christ. In chapter 2, verse 21, you have also been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example of how you should walk in his footsteps. That time and time again, he's drawing our eyes back to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in our place. And so if we want to strive for humility, we cannot strive for humility by looking upon ourselves with a mirror. We got to look through a window and look at Christ. Because if we want to gaze upon ourselves, am I humble in this? Am I I trusting Christ enough in this? Rather instead, look to Christ and turn to him and see his glory. See his beauty. See his sufficiency. See his plan in your suffering. See his glory in your suffering. See his provision in in your suffering. See his love in your suffering. See how he suffered in your place. You look at Christ and every day, every turn, look at Christ and you can be nothing but humbled in his presence. He turns their eyes back upon this Lord who suffered for them so that they would be humbled before him and walk like him. We can't lose sight of this in this earnest humility. One person said it this way, that Christian humility flourishes in the human soul when we are standing in front of a window that looks into the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. that we must look upon him. So when we find yourself wavering, consider him who also endured suffering so that we would not have to live according to the lust of the flesh. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 reminds us, Paul says, that if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Even Paul's end, you see what he's saying. If you die with him, if you're suffering with him, you live with him. If you endure, it's not just enduring, you also reign with him. That there is perspective in sight. That we must trust his mighty hand. So how should we respond no matter what season God has placed in your life today? Believer, It is found in humbling yourself under his mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time. So cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Our Father, I don't doubt this is an unfamiliar message to many of us. But Lord, I, I realize the honesty within all our hearts that we struggle to live it and to believe it. That our barrier is not an intellectual one. It is a spiritual one. And so Father, would you draw our eyes to Christ to be humbled in his greatness and by his greatness. so that Lord that we would walk humbly and to your glory. Would you do this in all of your people so that we would reflect the Lord who died in our place and rose again so that we would reign with him. We wait eagerly and we long for that day. This is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.